Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, everyone. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. I'm going to go ahead and start my timer here. I am a preacher and the son of a preacher, so I got to watch my time. I know you all wonderful people have places to be, but I am glad you are here right now in the house of the Lord. Because as was said earlier, there is no better place to be at this time and this moment in history in your life than right here in the house of the Lord. So I've had the privilege of getting to know Pastor Josh over the last year or so as a member of a small cohort of pastors. I know cohort sounds kind of evil, but that term's getting used popularly now. We're not like plotting bad things, but it's like this group of fellowship and accountability and just friendship between myself and 12 other pastors, of which Josh is one. And over that year, I've learned two things about Josh already. Number one, that he loves Jesus. And number two, he loves this church. And so I already know that you are in good spiritual hands here at Legacy City Church. It's already been a blessing just arriving here into this place. I could sense the spirit of the Lord moving among the people that are here, meeting the different saints and servants that have been serving this church for some of them since the very beginning. And I don't know if you all know, if y'all know, but setting up and tearing down for church and doing all the things behind the scenes, it takes to make service possible. It is a tremendous amount of sacrifice and effort. And so I just want you to know that you've got a team of dedicated servants here waiting to serve you at Legacy City Church. So again, just a total honor to be here. Now, in terms of my topic for the day, I'm not sure what I like better. Sometimes I like it when they just pick the topic for me. It's like it's easy. It's like, okay, you pick it, you pick the text, you pick the topic. Um, sometimes they don't pick the best topic in the world. I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. But then uh, other times the problem is when they say, oh, teach on whatever the Lord leads. It's like, okay, well, now I really have to pray, right? Because there's like a million things to talk about. And so after praying, the thing the Lord put on my heart was to preach on spiritual warfare today. So I'm going to be talking about spiritual warfare. I asked Pastor Josh, hey, is that cool with you? He said, yes, that's great. I haven't taught on that for a while. Go ahead and do that. And I suddenly remembered why I don't like to teach on spiritual warfare. Can anyone guess? Because every single time, no joke, every single time I teach on spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare happens. And it's not like the movies, right, where there's this big, you know, scary-looking monster in the closet, and the little group of weak little heroes has to find the amulet and say the right chant, and it goes away. No, most of the time, spiritual warfare doesn't look like that at all. What it looks like is arguing with my wife over seemingly nothing, over something I would almost never get into an argument about on a Saturday when I'm trying to prepare a Bible study on spiritual warfare. That's kind of what spiritual warfare looks like. As a matter of fact, I'll bet you, you don't have to raise any hands, some of you got on a fight on the way over today, am I right? Somebody, somebody, there was a married couple, there was a family, there was parents and kids, whatever it was, somebody got in a fight. And they're like, you know what, I'm not going today, or I'm going without you, or we're going to sit in separate places in church. You know there was spiritual warfare when you know people are married, and they're like in two totally different sections. So I'm going to be talking about spiritual warfare today. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be preaching from Ephesians 6, verses 20, excuse me, 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and begin with this statement. The surest way to lose a war is to be ignorant of the fact you're already in one. Now, many people would say, well, I'm not ignorant of warfare, Pastor Mike. I know darn well there's warfare all around us. I know there's a war in Ukraine right now. I know Russia instigated this militarily. I know that the United States, though we're not directly involved with the conflict, we are indirectly involved with that conflict. I know that we're sending pieces of military equipment over there and we're aiding them. I know that we are implementing economic sanctions I'm reminded of that every time I drive by a gas station in L.A. 
that we've implemented those things. More than that, I realize, especially if you guys thought about this, I'm sure that you have. In the last couple of years, we've seen warfare manifested socially and politically in our society. During the whole COVID and lockdown and everything, we saw lines being drawn in the sand. We knew they were kind of there before, but maybe they were a little bit blurry. But now they become clear. They become demarcated. And this country is being torn apart politically, socially. We also know there's, there's a war on families. Families are falling apart. A lot of people actually think families are passe. It's a thing of the past. A family, the biological or nuclear family, is just a relic of an ancient time. And we need to move forward, and the family is simply not a part of what we call progress. You can say, oh, no, I'm, I'm aware, Pastor Mike, that there's warfare. But that's still not what I'm talking about today. What we're talking about is something other than what you can simply see with your eyes. We're talking about the kind of warfare that is more real than the war that you see with your eyes. It's the kind of war that is ultimately the cause of all the warfare I just described. The book of James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your lusts, from your desires, whether it's an oligarch in, in Russia desiring more power, more control, more money? Or a husband who decides to forsake his wife of 30 years for no good reason. It comes from sin. It comes from the evil and wicked nature of the human heart. And it ultimately comes from what the Bible refers to as spiritual warfare. And so as we get into this morning's text, the message I am entitling is fighting the right fight the right way. Fighting the right fight the right way. Let us begin by reading the text of Scripture. We just want to hear the Bible as the Word of God. I want to ask you if you would, please stand with me now as we read God's Word. I always like this practice. I know that, uh, I know Josh did it at least last week, but I love this practice as well because it reminds us that though God uses preachers to speak to people right where they are, yet even those preachers are accountable and subordinate to the Holy Scriptures. So please follow along with me now as I read the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you have spoken in the past through the apostles and prophets, and in these last days you have spoken to us finally and supremely 
through your Son, Jesus Christ. It is Him we preach. It is Him we proclaim. We just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart this morning would be glorifying and acceptable in the sight of my Redeemer. I ask for the Holy Spirit to create now hearts and minds, able and willing to listen to these words, not as the word of a mere man, but as the Scripture says they are, the very word of God. May your word transform us now in body, mind, and spirit for the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and for the benefit and the blessing and the joy of all his saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Ernest Hemingway once said, once we have a war, there is only one thing to do. It must be won. For defeat brings worse things than anything that can ever happen in a war. So the fact is, if we are in a war, we must have victory. We must win. And so when it comes to spiritual warfare and fighting the good fight of the faith, I can't think of perhaps a better text of Scripture to teach from today than Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And so what I want to do right now is walk through three different aspects of this spiritual warfare in order that you may fight the right fight the right way. And to that end, I'm going to speak on three things. Number one, the nature of the fight, the context of the fight, and the armor of the fight. So number one, the nature of the fight. We see this captured in verses 11b through 12. There, if you look on your Bibles in front of you, it says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Number one, if you're going to fight the right fight, the right way, you've got to understand you are not simply battling people. Most people begin at the level of the merely human and natural. And that's understandable. That's not wrong. You, of course, are going to begin with what you see and with what you can hear. And what you see is that this person, perhaps in your workplace, is backstabbing you. They're trying to climb the ladder. They want that position. They want that job. And so they're speaking lies about you to discredit you, to put you down. Maybe some of you, even these lies, are a direct attack upon your faith as a Christian. And you're being put down because your faith, your beliefs, and your values do not conform to theirs. And so you look at this person and you say, they're the enemy. Or perhaps a husband and wife, as the years go on and they go through the ups and downs, the honeymoon phase is over, you begin to have children, you start to surrender your hopes and your dreams, things you, you didn't think you were surrendering when you got married, but nevertheless, it happened. Life called for a sacrifice, and you've made those things. And yet you feel that the other person, your spouse, has not made them equally. You're the one who's being just totally jacked over on this deal. And so you look at them, you go, they're the enemy. We saw in the last few years that the political parties constantly point the finger at one another. And by the way, regardless of how you vote or what you're affiliated with, have you ever noticed, like, nobody takes the blame for anything? Like, that's one of the things that absolutely drives me nuts about politics. Even if I think some things are clear, I don't think all things are clear. Some things are clear. But what I don't like is the lack of humility and the willingness to take responsibility for anything. It's always the other party's fault. It's them. They're the devil. So everybody begins by looking at the merely human and natural. What the Bible is not saying is therefore spiritual means ignore what people are doing. That spiritual means ignore what your 
coworker is doing. Ignore what your spouse is doing. Ignore what's going on in the political world. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean, though, is you look past these people as being means rather than the cause. And you are directed to look behind it to spiritual and demonic agencies which are ultimately working through people and systems in order to ensnare the minds and souls of countless men and women so that in C.S. Lewis's words, they are dragged to their father below. That is the goal of spiritual warfare. Make no mistake about it. It's not to make some people poor or some people rich or divide up this group and that group or this, that, and the other. There's really one goal of the devil. And it is to get every single person to go to hell. And I think C.S. Lewis is right in his book, The Screwtape Letters. I don't really think Satan cares how he gets you to go as long as you go. If he can get you to go to hell by giving you the biggest house in Hollywood, if he can give you the biggest platform as a social media influencer, if he can give you the most money and he can get you to go to hell, he's more than happy to bless your life. Simultaneously, maybe for some of you, having a bunch of stuff just doesn't do it for you. You're, you're not going to give in to the devil even if you're blessed uh, financially. But what if you're afflicted with trials and pain. What if you don't get the success you thought you were going to have? What if you're not as happy and fulfilled in your marriage as you thought you would be? What if people don't appreciate you as much? What if it turns out all that time and debt you got into to get your degree and now it's in a field that's declining and there's not even going to be a future there? What, what about that? What about if you get diagnosed with cancer? or some other horrendous disease. For some people, that's how Satan gets them to go. They harden their hearts, they're bitter, they can't understand how a loving God could allow pain and suffering, even though it's kind of strange, because Christianity is the one religion that says God suffered for us. So however he gets you to go, I don't think he cares. As long as he gets you to go. But the problem is, many people don't even believe the devil is even real. The 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire famously said, the finest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. The first thing we need to realize is we do not wrestle ultimately against flesh and blood. What's happened in the modern Western world is we've separated the quote spiritual from the quote human and material. And that's not a biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, everything is spiritual. There's no such thing as like a part of your week that's spiritual and another part that's not. The question is, are you engaged in that which is holy, just, right, and true, spiritually speaking? Or are you engaged in that which is unholy, unjust, wrong, and false? Everything is spiritual. And so you have to see that what is ultimately happening is something beyond what you can see. And that is step one to fighting the right fight the right way. Secondly, I want you to observe the context of the fight, the context of the fight. And for this, we actually have to go back a little bit. You don't need to read this at this time. You can uh, look this up later. I'll give you the reference for those that would like to be Bereans and go back and check this. But just write down Ephesians 5.22 through Ephesians 6.9. So this is the section that immediately precedes our section today. Now, what you'll see if you go back and read that is what is called by scholars a household code. Now, a household code was a common Greco-Roman writing in the first century where an established order of how to live life is set forward for culture and for society. The Bible has such household codes in Scripture, though they differ in some ways from their Greco-Roman counterparts. And so if you go back beginning in Ephesians 5.22, what you'll see is that there's instructions concerning different sets of human relationships. First, you'll see the Apostle Paul gives instructions concerning husbands and wives. He then goes on to give instructions concerning parents 
and children. He then goes on to give instructions concerning masters and bondservants, or by application in the modern world, we might say employers and employees. And if you think about that, those are like the fundamental relationships that you have in life. You've got marriage, you've got family, and you've got work. Work and family, that takes up the bulk of your life. And moving straight into the section, many people don't connect the two. They actually think Paul has changed subjects. He's like, oh, hey, by the way, Christians are nice little people that have nice little morals, and here's how you should treat people and do this. Oh, by the way, uh, I, before I forget, let me talk about something completely different. I would like to suggest something different. I would like to suggest Paul has not changed the subject. But rather, having talked about these fundamental human relationships that we can see, that we interact with every day, marriage, family, dating, singleness, work, vocation, and he goes right into spiritual warfare, it's because Paul understands that the primary context for spiritual warfare is your relationships. That's where it takes place. As the late former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, Warren Wearsby, once said, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. Every area of life is a place, a battleground, in which Satan is trying to divide and conquer. Satan is coming after marriages. He wants to destroy them. And I can tell you over the years, over 15 plus years in full-time vocational ministry, including doing much marriage counseling, it's amazing how many times believers... Professing believers who know the Bible, many of whom have sat under biblical teaching for years and years, and they've served in the church, and they've traveled to foreign countries to tell other people who haven't heard about the gospel, and then they're sitting in front of me telling me why they want to divorce their spouse with no biblical grounds whatsoever, and they seem to be utterly ignorant of the fact that this is what Satan wants. He wants to divide and conquer. And I think one of the problems in the church is that we're looking at the morals of the gospel without looking at the spiritual context of the gospel. The gospel doesn't simply provide a set of moral codes or moral imperatives that we are to do, but rather it is an unveiling of reality, if you think about that. What God is doing in the gospel, Paul says, is he's actually disarming the principalities and powers. And that's a direct reference to spiritual entities or demonic beings, as we might say. So the context of the fight is our relationships. And I hope that that is, if not a reminder, even an eye-opening reality, realization for some people today. Because like I said, many people, they think demonic warfare or spiritual warfare is, is something like you see in the movies, but it's not. It's something more like church division and strife. It's the kind of thing that becomes the, between the best of friends. It's when Christians who ought to love one another instead brutally backstab and gossip and slander about one another. It's when parents don't love their children, invest in their lives, set up moral boundaries over their children because they want to be more of a parent than a buddy. When children are rebelling against their parents, and again, I'm assuming for the sake of argument that they're not being asked to do anything that is inherently evil, but when children are rebelling against their parents, that is exactly what Satan is. He is a rebel against God and against proper authority, and he's doing this in the context of our lives. And so I hope nobody leaves without understanding those issues I'm dealing with in life, in all my relationships, they're not just what I thought they were. There's more going on. And I do think there are moments in life when we realize, man, something more is going on than what I, what I thought. Hey, that's kind of weird the way, you know, you kind of annoyed me, but like I made a really big deal out of it. 
this is kind of weird. Like I, I slipped and I sinned and, and now I just kind of want to keep running with it. And I'll cover up one lie with another lie with another lie. And next thing you know, I'm not just a person, a good person who tells lies. I'm a liar. We have to recognize Satan is working in relationships to destroy people. Number three, I want to spend a little time talking about the armor of the fight because that's probably the bulk of this passage here is explaining what God has given the believer in order to detect and defeat these attacks from the enemy. And this takes place in verses 14 through 20. So we'll go through these briefly. And kind of what I want to do, because this doesn't always get done, is I don't want to focus on the piece of armor per se, but I kind of want to talk about what the attack, or excuse me, what those pieces of armor imply the attack is. What's Satan doing? What's, what's his strategy? What's, what's his angle when he's doing this? So begin with me looking at verse 14. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the first piece of the armor that Paul says God gives to the believer is the belt of truth. Now, if the belt of truth is there to protect us, what's the weapon being used against us? Lies. Lies are a tool of the enemy. And I think we should think of lies in two ways. Number one, I think we should think of the lie with the definite article, the lie. What is the lie? The lie ultimately is the lie that is more consequential than any other lie. And that is the lie that Jesus Christ is not Lord. And that might not just be a, a lie you believe in your head, because there's people, by the way, that will say, oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord in my head. But they deny Jesus is Lord in their hearts. That is the fundamental lie. But even more than that, I think it is talking about lies in general. Lies in general are the stock and trade of Satan himself. Jesus actually said in the Gospels that Satan is the father of lies. He's a liar. And if you go back to the book of Genesis and you look at what Satan did, not only is he a liar, it is worth your time to really study the way in which he lied. Because it's very smooth and very subtle, as all good liars are, aren't they? He comes in, and he's not going to tell you like the most obvious, blatant lie. You know, he's not going to be like my little kids when they come in from the pantry and they're covered in the Oreo cookies. And I say, hey, did you eat a cookie? Like, I'm not asking for my benefit, right? I'm asking as an opportunity to come clean, relieve your guilty conscience. And they're like, no, what cookie? Right? Like, I know you just lied. It should have been like, well, you know, I had a cookie, but it was last night, and I think you said I could have one last night, and, and I just didn't wash my face. You know, it, they could have made it like a little bit, little bit more convincing, but it was just a blatant, obvious lie. Satan doesn't lie that way. Satan will begin with what is true. You need to realize that. He'll actually begin with what is true. That is why many people are willing to open up to a lie. It, it touches something you want to believe. Maybe it happens to be true, but it probably also simply is, I kind of want it to be true. I want to believe that. And so we begin welcoming that in, and then once we accept whatever that is, that's when Satan then makes a subtle little twist. Did God really say, hey, didn't God say he made you like him? Well, then why would he not want you to eat the fruit of the tree that'll make you like him? Come on, come, let, let's just reason together. Satan is crafty, cunning. He's a manipulator. He is a excellent liar. The greatest liar the world has ever told. I don't know if anyone's ever met just somebody who is a pathological liar. I've had to deal with some of those people in my life, and, and it really is scary how they can lie so convincingly, they believe it. They believe their own lies. Satan is a liar, and so for us as the Christian, certainly we don't want to, we cannot, by definition even, if we're Christians, believe the lie. Jesus is Lord. 
And I want him to be Lord in my life practically, not just in word, but also in deed. But it also means that Christians, we need to avoid lies of any kind, even if they're small. They're not good for you. Lies are non-reality. You're simply living into that which is false. And so learning not to enjoy lies, maybe they're entertaining lies. Maybe they seem small and inconsequential, but lies are always damaging to you. They're poisonous. And as Christians... And this, this is something I, I saw too. Sometimes Christians, they, they, they want to do something for the truth. And so even if there's misinformation, you know, like somebody made up fake news or a fake article and they think it helps the Christian cause. And so they, they cite it and it's like, you've got to be careful. Because lies in service of the truth are still lies. We have to be people that not only serve the truth, but serve the truth with more truth. So lies should have no place in the Christian life. Secondly, in that same verse, he speaks of the breastplate of righteousness. Well, what would be the opposite of righteousness? Well, on the one hand, it's unrighteousness. So you could see this as unrighteous living. When you engage in sin, you open yourself up to Satan. Again, in the movies, it's something like, man, why is there this demonic power over this particular house? Oh my gosh, it's because there's like a pentagram under the couch and we didn't know it. So we got to move the couch and like scrub it real good. Or we, we got to do this like thing or whatever. Guess what? Guess what the secret little symbol is that Satan uses to get in your life? It's not a drawing on your floor. It's sin in your heart. We can tell ourselves this sin's not that bad. Everybody does it. It's not a big deal. Hey, nobody will know. No one's around. Just, just a little thing. But sin is actually how Satan gets a foothold in your life. And if you take spiritual warfare seriously, even if a sin looks little on the surface, if Satan can use it to gain a foothold, to storm the beachhead of your life and take out your defenses, then you should want nothing to do with it, if not for the thing itself, but for the fact that Satan uses it to defeat you in bigger ways. We can also say the opposite in the Bible of righteousness is self-righteousness. There's really only two options according to the gospel. There's either the righteousness of Christ, which means none of us are good enough. I don't care how wonderful a Christian person is, and by the way, I know so many just absolutely, the, the most amazing people I've ever met in my life are Christian people. Am I aware there's hypocritical Christians Trust me, I'm a pastor's kid. I know all about that. I know about church divisions. I know about hypocrites and judgmental people. That's why I walked away and did drugs and alcohol and all that stuff and blamed Christians until I found out I was just as bad as everybody else. But let me tell you something. Even the best of Christians is not good enough to enter the kingdom of God. That is why the, the truly... Most sanctified believers are also the most humble because they take no credit. They don't look down on other people. They don't look down on new believers. They don't look down on non-believers who are trapped in various forms of sin because they look and they simply say, there go I, but by the grace of God. As a matter of fact, it's like if you knew our story, some of us, I know some people, if you're coming here today, you're not a Christian and you're like, oh, these people are like Ned Flanders and the Simpsons. I don't get it. It's just kind of all fake and whatever. Believe me. Go to coffee with somebody. Ask somebody, tell, tell me your story. You, you seem like you got it all together, but maybe you were born that way. You know, some people just seem born naturally. They just keep the rules. They're, I was a rule breaker, but you know, there's, some of y'all were just rule keepers from the beginning. I think some of you would be absolutely shocked that some of the people look like they have it all together. There was a time in their life when there was not one thing that was together. The Lord is saving people out of the highways and byways, out of the slums, out of the gutter. He's saving the down and outer as well as the up and outer. And to be able to hear those stories, you would realize that the gospel ultimately levels all of us by saying none of us are righteous. I can't look down on anyone. I can only look in compassion at a fellow image bearer made in the image of God, yet who is utterly lost and corrupted by sin. So the opposite of righteousness is self-righteousness. That's really the sin that will keep you from entering the kingdom of God. Whatever other sin you brought in with you today, God can give you victory over that. 
The thing that must be overcome today through the word of God, through the spirit, by means of the gospel, is self-righteousness. It's simply saying, whatever your outward condition, I don't need you, God. I can do it myself. I can keep the rules if I choose to, or maybe I think I'm so good I don't need these rules. Whatever it might be, it's that self-righteousness that Satan loves. Satan loves self-righteous people. Did you know that? Oh, he loves them. Why do you think Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees? It wasn't because they were worse outwardly. They weren't prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. They were self-righteous. And Jesus knows that is the worst sin of all. It's not what religious people think on the outside. It's what God sees on the inside. And it's that self-sufficiency that says, I don't need you. It's those whose hearts sing the tune of that old singer Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. If we move on to verse 15, we're going to see the next piece of equipment that is given is shoes for our feet, which Paul says are given by the gospel of peace. Now, the shoes metaphor here is not meant for running, but for footing. We know this because repeated throughout this section is the verb to stand, 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 stand. We're not talking about being light and running. We're talking about we want shoes that grip so that when someone tries to tackle you, they try to take you down, whatever it is, your feet don't slip. And what Paul says gives us that is the gospel of peace. So what is the opposite of peace? Division. Discord. Wherever there's division and discord happening, we've got to look at that and we've got to pause. Before we deal with whatever human elements are there, and we're not saying we ignore them, we've already covered this. We don't separate the spiritual and the human. They're working together. But what we do stop and say is, hey, wait a minute. If there's division and discord, then Satan is operating here. And again, I've seen this in the church where many times Christians are willing to divide a church over a particular issue, and they don't realize that division itself is a tactic of the devil. Divide and conquer. Very effective strategy. Always has been, probably. Always will be. And so again, it's something where we've got to step back and make sure, Lord, Am I in any way wrongly participating in the devil's desire to divide and conquer this family, this church, this friendship, this city, this country, whatever it is, because that's what Satan wants to do. And too many times we are unwitting participants in his plans. Next, in verse 16, we see the shield of faith. And obviously, if the armor is faith, then what's the opposite of faith? Doubt. Satan wants to sow seeds of doubt in your mind. But you might ask, doubt about what? Like how awesome I am? You know, it's like, don't doubt. You know, there's all that positive psychology stuff. The greatest evil in the world is doubting how wonderful you are. Uh, uh, you, uh, I disagree. I'm sure you're pretty, pretty good, but I doubt that. I doubt that. See what I did there? So doubt. What is he talking about? I think the fundamental doubt is the same doubt that was sown in the minds of Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan wants to get you to doubt the goodness of God. A lot of people don't want Jesus. They don't want God. They don't want Christianity. They don't want the Bible. And they have all these arguments, you know, scientific this, historical this, cultural that, etc., etc. And I'm not saying those things don't have any, any role that they shouldn't be addressed. But I actually think deep down underneath, that person really doesn't believe that God is good. If you believe that God was good, if, he, if you believe that he loved you, if you believe not only that he wanted the best for you, but he knew what was best, because how many of us can raise our hand this morning and say there was something we wanted so bad, we didn't get it, and now we can look back and say, thank God I did not marry her. <laughs> For ladies, it might be him. No, I'm not kidding, right? Uh, I'm not a country music fan, but somebody told me 
Garth Brooks, is he still alive? I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, not, not a country music fan. But he sang a song something like, thank God for unanswered prayers. And again, you could argue, well, they were answered, but it was a no or whatever. Okay. But you, you get the point. It was the idea that there's times in our lives where, God, if you love me, you'll give me this. God, if you love me, you won't give me that. And God doesn't answer it our way. So what do we do? We pout. Like little children who didn't get the PS5 under the Christmas tree. We're like, well, fine. You obviously aren't good because I establish good. I determine what is ultimately good. And if I don't get what I have established as good, then therefore you aren't good. And that's what we say to God. And so I think one of the things that has to happen if anyone is going to come to Christ is you've got to see the goodness of God. You've got to know that, yeah, are there rules in the Bible? Sure, but is the Bible fundamentally about rules? Did God create humans merely for the sake of rules? For God so loved the rules that he created humans in order to keep them. That is not the gospel. If there are rules in the Bible, they are there because God loves you. Think of them as the boundaries that show you where home is. Sweet son or daughter, I put these boundaries up for you so you wouldn't get lost. See, you were made for me. As Augustine says, your heart was made for me and your heart will always be restless until it comes to rest in me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. My rules are the, the fences around our property that say, honey, come home. It's not safe out there. If you learn to see the goodness of God and even the things you once saw as God not loving you or God hating you or, or just religion or whatever else it was, I believe that you can experience the power of the gospel for the first time. Remember, the heart of God is the heart of the father and the prodigal son who wasn't looking for a way to get rid of his son. He didn't say, well, you, were, you, you, you wished I was dead. You took everything. You took the inheritance. You ruined it all. You ended up with the pigs. And now you're home. Oh, look who's home. That wasn't the heart of the father. That heart of the father went running. And I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said on this point. He said, what is it with this rich landowner in this parable? Why is he running? Rich men don't run. Aristocrats don't run. They have servants that run. Why is this aristocrat, this rich landowning man, father, running like an idiot, pulling up his robes and running? Because he loves his son so much. He's afraid if he doesn't run and get to him first, his son will turn around and go right back to the pig pen. And when he finds his son who wasted everything, he puts his royal robe of righteousness around him. He gives him his signet ring. He slaughters the fatted calf and he brings him in. And he says, my son or daughter who was dead is alive. And that's the goodness of God. And that leads us to verse 17 where we see the helmet of salvation. And if the helmet is made of salvation, what is its opposite? Lostness. The opposite of being saved is being lost. If you're not saved this morning, the Bible would say you're lost. You don't know where you're going. You might have some idea, but you probably really don't get where your life is headed. And the church is meant to be, the assembly of the saints is meant to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, a lighthouse in a dark place in which we proclaim men and women you are heading for the rocks and you're going to make shipwreck of your life. But there is one who saves. And so what Satan wants to do is trap us in that lost condition. And finally, in verse 17, we see that the one weapon, notice that, the rest of this was defensive in nature. The last is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the word of God. You'll notice that when Jesus was combating none other than Satan himself in the wilderness, what weapon did he use? The word of God. Knowing the truth about God. And it's not just, by the way, truth in your mind, which is powerful. Knowing the truth about ultimate things matters. But I would say it's more than that. It's truth that changes. It's truth that empowers. It's truth that not only changes your mind, but your heart and your soul as well. 
the Word of God is able to distinguish for you not only what is true or right out there, but guess what? What is true or right in you? How do you know if that bit about you is good or bad? Do you, do you seriously turn on your TV or the internet to find out? Is that where we're getting it from? from? From the school system, from the government, from news channel? That's who we're letting us tell us who we really are? How about hearing from the God in whose image you were made? Amen? Should we ask the one who made the human machine, the human body, and designed us to run in precisely a certain way, should we ask him perhaps who we really are and what we're meant to do? And if the answer is yes, and there is no other word so powerful and so needed as the word of God. And so we've seen the nature of the fight, the context of the fight, and the armor of the fight this morning. But I want to say that even becoming aware of these three things does not guarantee a victory. In fact, if all that happens today is you came here on a Sunday, and props to you, it's really nice out there and there was a cool farmer's market, so you were here. But if all that happened today is you came to this place and your brain gained a little bit of knowledge, then you will be as helpless as the armies of Israel were when they cowered in fear before the Philistines and their champion Goliath. If you remember that story from the Old Testament, the giant Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days because he knew the army of Israel could not withstand him. And in the same way, if we attempt to fight Satan in our own strength, we will be defeated. I'm not asking you to muster up your own courage and your own strength as though it's inherent in you. But rather, like Israel, I want to say, we need a champion. This is why the Apostle Paul closes this section by tying all the armor of God together in prayer. Notice that in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. We need someone who can fight for us. Someone who withstood all the taunting of the devil for 40 days and defeated him and his schemes at every point. What we all need today is faith in the greater David, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus alone who is able to slay the spiritual giant of evil known as Satan. It is Jesus alone who can grant you victory over the sin in your life. Charles Spurgeon said, when you plead the name of Christ, you plead that which shakes the gates of hell and that which the hosts of heaven obey. And God himself feels the sacred power of that divine plea. And the very armor of which Paul has spoken here today in Ephesians 6 is nothing less than the spiritual armor of the Lord himself. And so fighting the right fight the right way means making a decision today to put your trust in Jesus and taking a stand with him in the victory he's already accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I believe you have spoken because you always promise to speak through your word. It is your inspire, theopneustos, God-breathed word. The same breath of life you breathed into Adam at the beginning of creation is the same breath being offered today through the gospel. And so if anyone today would want life, and that more abundantly, I ask that you grant them the grace to say yes to Jesus Christ. And that you would respond by breathing into them the breath of life. That they might become born again and adopted into the kingdom of God. Transferred from this world of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. Lord, I thank you that the scripture says you inhabit, you indwell the praises of your people. 
I ask now as we take what we've heard from the preaching of the word and we would ponder these things and direct them to you through the spiritual and powerful act of praise. I pray for a blessing and anointing now over this worship team that you have given so graciously to the church who've not only been gifted great musical talent, but more than that, spiritual power. So Father, speak to hearts today. If there are any lost sons and daughters that have wandered far, it's been so long, they even forget where they came from. But you and your love are running towards them this morning. You love them more than they can dare imagine. You are not waiting for them to clean up their lives. You are waiting for them to come to you so you can clean up their lives. So if anyone wants Jesus Christ today as their Lord and Savior, I would encourage you, come to him as you are. No pretense, no boasting in what you can do or can't do. Simply come to him with all your faults, your sins, your failures. Not only the sins you've done and even those sins that have been done against you. Bring them to the cross. Feel your burdens set free. And experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. For the saints among us this morning, Lord, grant them faith upon faith to believe. Enable them to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Give them wisdom to love their families, their friends, this church, their neighborhood, their co-workers, the city of Los Angeles. Give them the grace to live for your kingdom and to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We commit this time of praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.